0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Good morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of the scriptures, but I assure you we won't read the entirety of the, uh, of the epistle in one standing. Uh, I, I'm going to make a, uh, an audible here and say, let's read from verse 8 to verse uh, 14. I think this is the heart of the letter, and you will see the rest of it in a moment. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. If you would please be seated. It's Paul's custom to uh, commend some of the people to whom he writes or for, from whom he sends greetings. And I, I just want to say that uh, this has been a real privilege for me to serve alongside your, your leadership uh, while Ben was away on his sabbatical. And uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but I taught Ben some of what he knows uh, and maybe a lot of things that he's forgotten, but... Uh, At any rate, I I, I, uh, think of the words of the Apostle John in 3 John chapter 4. I mean, chapter 1. There's only one chapter in 3 John as well, another short epistle. But verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And uh, that is certainly the case. Uh, Ben, keep up the good work. God bless you. So, here we are uh, in Philemon, another one of the shorter letters of the book, uh, shorter books of the New Testament. I've heard it called a New Testament postcard before, and I think that's pretty clever. Now, last week, as we concluded the book of Colossians, we explored, in part, the topic of Paul as a letter writer. Paul's open letters to churches were much longer Than the average letter of his day. But the letter to Philemon stands alone among Paul's collected letters as the shortest and the most personal. In this letter, Paul acts as a mediator in a conflict between Philemon, a Roman nobleman, and his runaway slave, Onesimus. Now, we'll start by summarizing the story of Onesimus and Philemon, given what we could say from the letter itself. And this will unfold as we we see it. But I I want you to know the story ahead of time here. So, first step is that Philemon, a wealthy Roman citizen and slaveholder, met Paul, who led him to the Lord. Now, perhaps it was while Philemon was on business in Ephesus, the capital of Roman Asia during the two years that Paul was living and teaching there, but it could have been anywhere, really. Uh, Acts 19 and 1 Corinthians 16 uh, tell us that Paul uh, spent a long time in Ephesus. So at least that's a plausible place uh, to begin. But we do know this, that Philemon, this is step two, Philemon began using his home estate in Colossae for a meeting place for the church. This is why we read Colossians and Philemon together, uh, as well as the same messengers we see here. Step three, Onesimus, a slave, ran away from Philemon's household. Now, in the world of that time, a slave fleeing his master was a serious offense under Roman law, and many runaway slaves were crucified as punishment. So it's very serious. Step four, Onesimus, who lived in Colossae, somehow came in contact with Paul in prison in Rome. Now, we don't know how this happened, but perhaps, this is just another one of my perhaps but this is in the gap here. Maybe Onesimus ran away from Philemon during one of Philemon's visits, perhaps, to Rome. We just don't know. Now, we do know this, step five. Onesimus responded in faith to God's call in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he began serving alongside Paul in the work of the gospel. And the sixth step in our story, and we do know this from the letter, Paul sent Onesimus from Rome back to Colossae and Philemon's house with this letter containing a request to forgive Onesimus and have him return to Rome as a free man to serve Paul. So, Onesimus is, by the standards and law of his day, the person at fault in this conflict. Philemon is the wronged party in the dispute, and Paul is the mediator between the two. So, the story of the letter really falls into three main parts. Now, part number one is verses four through seven. This is before the crisis, so to speak. Part two, is verses 8 through 14 that we just read. This is the mediation between uh, uh, Paul and the two parties in this dispute. And part three is verses 15 to 22, transforming their relationships. So, before we get to the before the crisis scene, there's the opening credits, and that's verses 1 through 3. The family and leaders Most affected by the crisis appear here in the address. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus are the recipients of this letter. Now, it's widely agreed that Philemon and Apphia are the husband and wife of the household. So this is the family who is affected most by this conflict between the two. Now, Archippus, whom we met in Colossians 4.17, is likely a leader in the church. Perhaps the pastor, while Epaphras, the founding pastor, is away. And notice that the church meets in your house, That's Philemon's house. Now, this house could have been the only one hosting meetings of the church in Colossae, but there were likely others. There were other, perhaps, people who opened their houses. And uh, uh, a typical house church would have been about the size of the uh, the congregation this morning. About 50 or so is the upper limit of what you can fit in a house church uh, of that time, if you're thinking just about archaeology and and other things that are said. So these would have been been rather small groups of people uh, meeting from house to house. So part one, verses four through seven, this is before the crisis. Now, Paul begins all of his letters with a note of thanksgiving for the readers. Now, this thanksgiving for Philemon is particularly crucial in his approach to Philemon. because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you." Philemon has not only opened his home as the church building, but he himself is a pillar of the church, and his character reflects the qualities of the church. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, this was the first of the messages that I, had, that I brought uh, as we started this series. We read in Colossians 1, 4-5 about the church's faith, hope, and love towards all the saints. And we see Philemon addressed almost exactly the same way, his faith and his love for all the saints. And I think there's something embedded in there as well, the, all the saints, meaning Onesimus included. In verse 6, Paul thanks God for the past service that Philemon has offered for the church. Here he calls it the sharing of your faith. Now, the word sharing can also be rendered fellowship. You might have heard the term. So this is referring not only to Philemon's common bond of faith in the gospel with the church at Colossae, but also the sharing of his resources. Paul has in mind, I think specifically, by saying this in verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective, that, uh, that Philemon's opening his home to the gospel ministry uh, <clears throat> uh, has taken place because he says the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. See, Paul's prayer is that this past service will become effective for further good in the cause of Christ. Now, this is like those good works for which we have been saved in Ephesians 2:10. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So all Christians are called to do good in all of their relationships so that God will be exalted by what he does through us. And so Philemon's faithfulness as a believer in Jesus has contributed To Paul's encouragement. Paul says that he has great joy and comfort from Philemon's demonstration of his love. Paul's joy is at seeing God's character formed in Philemon and at seeing Philemon's attitude towards helping believers to fulfill God's plan for their lives, and he takes comfort or encouragement from it. He has grown to love Philemon as a fellow brother in Christ, Now, Paul isn't the only one who's benefited from Philemon's kindness, as I've said. Paul says the other Christians' hearts, the saints' hearts, have received refreshment. They've come to Philemon's house, they've met fellow believers, they've heard the Word of God taught, they've met each other's needs, they've prayed with one another, a whole host of other things that they've done together, their hearts have been encouraged. Now, To express his love, this term heart, to express his love, Paul uses the word that's translated hearts in verse 7. It's the Greek word splanchnon. Can you say that real fast? Splanchnon. Corresponding to our word guts or intestines or bowels, if you will. Uh, This Greek word guts describes the center of one's affection or mercy or compassion. Uh, there's even a verb for this that we're going to run into in a, in, in a little bit here. But ancient Greeks felt their emotions in their intestines rather than in the heart. Okay, or you know, the Hebrews in their kidneys, you know, just somewhere in here. Now, we modern English speakers would naturally use the word heart because that's just the way we think of things rather than the word gut for this idea. It's English-speaking mothers taught their English-speaking children to speak English that way. That's just how we do it. So, Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of their close relationship, this compassion, this affection they have for one another, and their love for one another in the Lord. And this term, splachnon, or hearts, Paul repeats in each of the three main sections of the letter starting here in part one for his description of Philemon's service to other believers. And in part two, in verse 12, Paul talks about Onesimus as his own guts. It's like he sent his heart to Colossae. And this is part of Paul's appeal for Onesimus. And then in the last, the last main section of the letter, anyway, verses 15 to 20, Paul calls on Philemon to, reflect, to refresh Paul's guts, verse 20, in the Lord, just the way he had refreshed the guts of the saints here in verse 7. So the hearts of believers, Onesimus and Paul, should be dear to Philemon as well. And this is how he really begins his appeal to Philemon. So this first portion is very critical to the way in which Paul is going to gently mediate this conflict between Philemon and Onesimus. So, part two is the mediation. Now, this section is where the business part of the letter begins. And if we look again to verses 8 through 10, accordingly... He says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul refuses to pull rank, if you will, on Philemon, even though he is Paul the Apostle. Instead, in verse nine, Paul speaks as an old man, number one, and number two, as a prisoner. Now, I wanna focus more on old man here. Then the first century AD Jewish writer Philo tells us something really interesting about this word old man. Philo says Hippocrates, now Hippocrates was a fourth century BC doctor But he he tells us that Hippocrates applied the term old man to a man of between 50 to 56 years of age. Uh, When I studied that, I was studying for this message, I thought, I'm an old man. (laughs) Wow. Maybe we shouldn't study so deeply. Uh, Now, we don't know how old Paul was, but that number sounds sort of in the ballpark for what we can reconstruct of who Paul is. But but by way of comparison, in Acts 7, 38, at the stoning of Stephen, Saul is called a young man. On Hippocrates' scale, that would have been someone under the age of 40. But old man is a more familial way to emphasize a loving authority. And so he'd prefer to appeal to Philemon on that basis. And then the fact that he's also now imprisoned for the cause of Christ. So now at last, in verse 10, Paul brings up Onesimus. I appeal to you, he says, for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And there we we have again this familial term, right? By calling Onesimus my child, Paul evokes these strong emotions that he feels and the new family that Onesimus has joined because now we finally get the great news that Onesimus has come to faith in Christ just like Philemon did perhaps some years before. How marvelous news that is. And we should rejoice every time we hear that someone has come to faith in Christ. Now, verse 11, he uh, he pauses... You can see that they're in parentheses here. Verse eleven is this sort of aside uh, to to really kind of make a joke and to to uh, continue this idea of affection for Onesimus. He says, "Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he now he is indeed useful to you and to me, to you and to me." In verse eleven, we can hear this real bond of affection between Paul and Onesimus because Paul plays on his name. The name Onesimus is also the word for useful in Greek. It's the, it's the word onesimos. Okay, so we just transliterate that and that's his name. Uh, and this is the play on words that Paul is making here. You see, there's a, there's another more common word for useful. It's the word christos. Not to be confused with the, word, the Greek word for Messiah, Christos. Okay, so, Christos, useful. Onesimos, useful. Now, if you want to negate a term in Greek, you stick an alpha on the front of it, an A on it. So, it's like sticking UN uh, uh, in front of something, unuseful, right? So, if you want to negate a term in Greek, you start the word with an alpha. So, now when Paul says useless, he says, a Christos, and when he says useful, he intensifies the word and says, el Christos, literally, well useful. So, indeed useful, the way uh, ESV says it. I would translate it, really useful. He was useless, he was completely useless to you, and now he's really useful. Onesimus, while he was away from Philemon's household and no longer working as a slave there. He would have been useless in Philemon's eyes at any rate. But now, with Paul, Onesimus is truly living up to his name here in Rome, and he will prove useful to you, Philemon, and to me, to Paul, if Philemon will agree to Paul's appeal. You see, when we come to faith in Christ... We go from being useless to being useful in God's economy. As Paul says, and I, I quoted this earlier, Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're useful to God because of the works that God has prepared for us to do. It's not as though we're doing something for God and He says, "Well, oh, okay, I'm pleased with that. He's pleased with what he does through us. And so Paul continues in Colossians in verse 12. He says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And there's that word guts again. So Paul says he sent Onesimus back to Philemon, sending my very heart. He now applies this term directly to Onesimus, not just to believers. He says, Onesimus is this... This guy, this this deeply underscores this affectionate love has that Paul has for him, but it also uh, draws Philemon to be more affectionate towards Onesimus. The HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, captures the emotion. I am sending him back to you as a part of myself. You know, we can discover the response Paul wants from Philemon by looking to the attitude Jesus wants from all believers, as he expressed in the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, you may know it as that. Uh, it's in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. In this story, the younger son demands and receives his share of the inheritance from his father, leaves home, spends it all on immoral lifestyle in a foreign country, And with his wealth spent, his financial difficulties force him into the most degrading job position. He realizes he's sinned against his father and repentantly heads home to a father who had been daily watching for his return. And he welcomes him home with a grand celebration. See, the point of the story is that the father has been anxiously waiting for the opportunity to forgive and welcome his wayward son. The father in the story plays the role of grace-giver and forgiver. The parable shows actually the way Jesus welcomes the sinner who comes to Him and gives him or her freedom from the bondage to sin. So when reading this parable, you know, we often see ourselves as the prodigal son, don't we? Lost and sinning. And that's correct. Correct. But Paul shows us that we need to be like the father in the parable as well. We need to be ready to forgive and to imitate Jesus by celebrating the repentance of the the forgiven sinner. So Paul wants Philemon to imitate Jesus by thinking like the father in the parable. His heart needs to go out to Onesimus, just the way the father in the story in Luke Fifteen twenty. The father had compassion on this man from afar. This is this is the key to to tell us there he is. He's been you know he's been out there like waiting for him to come back, and when he sees him he runs. That's just completely undignified. But the verb there is he had compassion. Well, that's our word splanknon again. That's the verbal form of this word splanknon. so his guts went out to his wayward son, and he runs to meet him. And he he, uh, just takes him in his arms, and, and there's this great celebration. That's exactly the way Paul is saying, Philemon, you need to be ready to welcome Onesimus back, just like Jesus said in that parable. So Paul goes on in Philemon, verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Now, Paul's persuasion continues with a key phrase, to serve me on your behalf. Onesimus takes the place of Philemon in service to Paul. And what a fascinating substitution this is. We've seen the point before. Onesimus, who Philemon considered useless, is really useful to Paul. And and Philemon now is being useful through Onesimus to Paul. Paul. But verse 13, in verse 13, Paul acknowledges this problem when he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. He refuses to let Onesimus continue in an absent-without-leave situation. He must have persuaded Onesimus that it was time to set things right with Philemon because Onesimus goes back to Colossae with Tychicus to deliver this correspondence. Remember, we read that in... in uh, Colossians chapter four verses seven through nine. So Onesimus is the returning prodigal son, if you will. So now we come to verse fourteen, which I think really is the key to the book, because it's the heart of Paul's approach to Philemon as he brings this request for Onesimus. Verse fourteen, I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness. Might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. See, true obedience, by which I mean willing obedience that glorifies God, true obedience to God's will is willing and joyful obedience. See, the action that Paul requests from Philemon, he calls your good. The ESV translates your goodness. No, but that's easy to misunderstood misunderstand i think goodness as a character quality when paul is really asking for an action here so the word good is an action like ephesians 2:10 again for good works we've been created so in philemon 14 in order that your good deed we could sort of revise or paraphrase, in order that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now, it's this part of the verse, by compulsion, that's contrasted with of your own accord. We could say, of your own uncoerced volition. Might might be one way to say it. You're at liberty to do what is right. In other words, you're at liberty to do what God wants. But Paul doesn't want to force Philemon in any way because it must not be coerced if it's truly to imitate God. Now, to illustrate not by compulsion, we can look to another passage like this. Paul's uh, approach to his request for this good deed is the same as his approach to giving in 2 Corinthians 9-7, and it just happened to be the the uh, the topic of this morning's uh, Sunday school, everyone kept reading Second Corinthians nine seven. I was going, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I didn't put them up to this, but you know, just uh, pro, uh, God's providence had us exposed to that verse, and uh, the way Brian brought that up when he, he was talking about the the offerings as well. So now I just need to give the background for a moment in Second Corinthians. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking of a special fundraising project to help provide for the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem is made up of mostly Jewish Christians. Now, the money was being raised from the churches outside of Jerusalem, where there were mostly Gentile Christians. And these funds are designed to demonstrate, not only to meet their needs, but they also demonstrate the unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church. And this this is a a hugely important thing to Paul. It really illustrates his gospel, his law-free gospel that Jews and Gentiles come to faith in the same way, just like Abraham did. So he directs believers to give to this project, but he says they're to do so only in a certain way. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, although this text in 2 Corinthians is focused on giving, it's a template by which we can measure obedience to God. We can extend the principles of giving to any good work that we do. Every good work God is designed for us to do is intended by God to come sincerely from our hearts with a desire to glorify Him. He's the one who designed the works. He's the one who leads us to to do those works. And actions that please God, good works, that is, works that God considers good, must be done with a willful and joyful heart. The action is to be done, you see, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, willingly. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, and it's not reluctantly or under compulsion. The Greek phrase from compulsion or from necessity is the one in our text in nine seven, and it's exactly the term that Paul uses in Philemon, that word compulsion in verse 14. In other words, Paul says the Corinthians giving should not be from the crack of a whip or an order from a judge. The motivation to give should come from within our hearts, not an external force to compel us. Secondly, the word for reveals how a freely given action or gift glorifies God. For God loves a cheerful giver. Obedience to God's will is never only about doing something that we ought to do. God is not pleased with obedience that's forced, resentful, or miserable. God does not love that sort of obedience. That would be, these people's lips praise me, but their hearts are far from me. Obedience must be accompanied by joy. That's the word cheerful in 2 Corinthians 9-7. That comes from a relationship with Him, this joy that comes from from a relationship with him. So Paul says giving, like every Christian good work, is willful and joyful. So Paul wants Philemon's response in verse 14 of our text to be willing and joyful. Philemon needs to know what God wants from him. That is, that God wants him to forgive and to set Onesimus free motivated by his heart and love for God. Philemon needs to see how God can be glorified by Onesimus' service to Paul in the gospel ministry, because that's where God has put Onesimus. This leads us to part three, verses 15 to 22. And this this is about transforming their relationship now. Now, with the main request made, Paul wants to be sure Philemon sees the action of freeing Onesimus within God's plan and will. Look at verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, literally an hour, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, that's the word slave again, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the flesh. And in the Lord. The passive voice was parted, he was parted from you for an hour, it emphasizes that God parted Onesimus from Philemon. It's somewhat like another situation with Joseph when he says to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Paul sees Onesimus as running away under God's sovereignty with ramifications for eternity. See, Paul makes a contrast between an hour and forever. You see it again in uh, in verse 16. Uh, sorry, verse 15. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for an hour, so that forever you might have him back. As a believer in Christ, he can be Philemon's friend and brother for eternity. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you look around, around this room and you say, Wow, I'm going to get to spend eternity with my friends, my brothers, my sisters. See, Paul sees the salvation of Onesimus, the spiritual side of this story, as infinitely more precious than the financial loss or the personal affront against Philemon. Paul is trying to get Philemon to see Onesimus' salvation and work ministering to Paul is far better than the return of Onesimus to his household as a slave. This is the eternal and divine perspective that we need as we interact with others. Because you and I will live with each other for eternity. What does it doesn't matter the petty differences that we have now in time? See, Philemon 16 now, let's go to verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is a very clear indication that Paul seeks Onesimus' freedom by pointing out the bond of brotherhood between Philemon and Onesimus. Their bond as Christians in the Lord will enable... Philemon and Onesimus, to be completely reconciled. The next verse he says, so if you consider me your partner, that's that word, that's related to that word fellowship again. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. The words receive him as you would receive me are literally receive him as me. Paul wants Philemon to treat Onesimus the way he would treat Paul. That puts Onesimus on equal, at least on equal footing with Philemon, but perhaps even higher, since Philemon had high regard for Paul the apostle, Paul the old man, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ. In verse 18, if he has wronged you at all, notice, notice if, if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Just put that on my tab. And so I think that it almost has that humor to it. You know how people say, just put that on my tab. Right? See, many scholars take this verse to mean that Onesimus had stolen money or damaged property when he ran away. Since that often happened when slaves did, they might steal to finance their flight. Others think that Paul simply means the loss of Onesimus' labor or perhaps the cost of buying a slave to replace him. Or it could have been perhaps whatever amount Onesimus might have been able to pay for his own freedom. I don't think it's any of that. I, I think Paul is just saying, put it on my tab. But Paul's word if makes any of Onesimus' wrongdoing hypothetical. Okay, now he does recognize there has been some wrong that's led to this conflict, right? But he's saying, Philemon, just let it go. So it's hard to know for sure what exactly Onesimus did, and I don't think we need to know. I I think that's kept private for some reason. But you know, what is surprising here to an ancient audience is this blank check that Paul is writing with the words, charge that to my account. I mean, when you think about the, real, the reality of the situation, Paul is in prison and probably without the means to earn the kind of money it would take to pay whatever debt or to make restitution for whatever Onesimus had allegedly done, possibly had done. But Paul doubles down on this in, in the next verse. Look at this in verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. You know, at the end of Colossians, we saw Paul's habit of closing the letter with his own handwriting as a sign of authenticity and security for the letter. But here, he writes with his own hand before the closing. (coughs) Paul personally insists that he will repay. This is a Greek legal technical term meaning to pay damages or make compensation, Paul is binding himself legally to guarantee whatever debt Onesimus had incurred. Paul was prepared, I think, to deal with any official consequences that might be imposed if Philemon were to assert his rights under Roman law. But Paul never encourages us to assert our rights. He points in Philippians chapter 2 to Jesus Christ, who had every right to assert his rights as God, but yet humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross kind of death. And that's why God highly exalted him and gave him this name, which is above every title that could be awarded, that at the title of Jesus, people would bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the, that's the template that Paul sets out in Philippians. When he gets to the end of that letter, he says, I urge you, Odea and Suntiki, to get along together in the Lord. It's the same kind of approach that Paul is taking to this. Philemon, don't assert your rights. But he is serious about taking on this debt. So if, Paul, if Philemon is going to assert his rights, Paul says, okay, put that on me. It's like Jesus, isn't it? There's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ himself, a man. Paul is serious about taking on this debt, but he reminds Philemon of an even bigger debt that Philemon owes Paul. Verse 19, to say nothing of you're owing me even yourself. Paul means to remind Philemon of the priceless value of salvation and forgiveness. Philemon is supposed to respond to God's grace by imitating that grace in his relationship with Onesimus. And we saw this reflected in the prodigal son parable. And we can also see it in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. In this parable... A slave is forgiven an impossibly huge debt, zillions of talents, right? Huge debt by the king, and then he refuses to forgive the tiny debt a fellow slave owed him. Now, that parable ends with this forgiven yet unforgiving slave punished by the king for his lack of grace. Now, the point of that story is that the slave had been forgiven so huge a debt should have been motivated to forgive a much smaller debt someone else owed him. Now, when Paul brought the gospel to Philemon, he had already demonstrated God's kindness and grace to Philemon in Jesus. Now, Philemon needs to see himself as that forgiven slave of the king. Verse 20, "'Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord.'" Refresh my heart in Christ. The last part of Paul's appeal takes on a humorous twist with another pun on Onesimus' name. The verb uh, that's translated, I want some benefit, or let me have some benefit from you, is the verb, Oninemi. And it's the root of that adjective, Onesimos, which is this guy's name. It's almost as if Paul were saying, I would like Onesimus from you in the Lord, as well as, you know, benefits. So it's like he's saying two things at once at two different levels. In the last sentence of verse 20, he says, Refresh my heart. This is the third and final occurrence of that word guts that we talked about earlier comes here. Philemon has helped encourage believers' hearts. Onesimus is... Paul's heart and now he asks Philemon to refresh Paul's own heart. And maybe that's Onesimus too. I don't know. Maybe maybe he's saying refresh Onesimus, my my really great friend. See, believers who walk in faith and love can be relied on to do the will of God. So so Part 3 ends with verses 21 and 22, and he's made his appeal, and now he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul asks Philemon again, So give Onesimus his freedom when he says, you will do even more than I say. Paul has made his case that because Philemon has received such magnificent grace from God, he should imitate God and be generous now in forgiving and freeing Onesimus. But Paul has left Philemon's decision to God's guidance. With an ironic twist, Paul says he is persuaded of your obedience. That is, the master Philemon, his obedience and obedience to the higher master, Jesus Christ. Someone who belongs to Christ is obligated to practice this law of love. We as believers need to imitate this loving forgiveness that Paul expects from Philemon. Now, there's an interesting difference between the end of Colossians and the end of Philemon. You, remember, you may remember from last week the ending of Colossians in which Paul said, I, Paul, wrote this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. But in this much shorter letter to Philemon in verse 22, we read, Prepare a guest room for me. See, Paul's prayer request, Remember my chains, in Colossians 4.18, anticipates the answer. Prepare a guest room for me. Paul expresses the same confidence that God will answer their prayers. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, that is, his deliverance from prison. This strong confidence about his release demonstrates Paul's complete trust in God's providence for him and for Philemon. So the closing greetings now up here, these are the, these are the credits as they're rolling, right? Uh, <clears throat> no one ever sticks around for all the credits, right? But uh, I, I showed you last week how there can be some benefit in seeing who was, you know, who was the script writer, who wrote the, uh, who wrote the music, and who was the key grip, and so on. Philemon 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Did you notice that Aristarchus was called my fellow prisoner in Colossians 4.10? and Epaphras is now called my fellow prisoner. This is prisoner of war. Remember, we talked about this. Now, the situation in Paul's confinement allowed people to visit and stay with Paul. The very end of the book of Acts describes his imprisonment, uh, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. Uh, he, meaning Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense. The Net Bible says, in his own rented quarters, instead of in his own, for, at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, with all boldness and without hindrance. So even, Paul, even though Paul is under house arrest, he's in chains, he's preaching the word of God without hindrance. So people are allowed to come and go. It's, kind of a, it's not a high security prison, not at least the building. It's high security in that he would have been chained. But it may be that Aristarchus and Epaphras traded places by serving uh, Paul, by sharing in his imprisonment. We just don't know why, why, why Epaphras is, uh, plays this role in, in Philemon and Aristarchus does in Colossians. But Philemon 25, the, the, the end of the letter, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And the your there, by the way, is Plural with y'all's spirit. Okay, this is, this is the New Texas translation. Uh, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with y'all's spirit. That is, he's talking to the whole church again. So, you know, he's been talking to Philemon for most of the time, but now he, he, he turns back and, and addresses his closing blessing to the whole church. He's praying for the Lord's grace to be at work in Philemon's heart so that thanksgiving will abound to the glory of God. Reconciliation between these two men would lead to far more wonderful and valuable demonstration of God's power. So this little book of Philemon packs an outsized punch, doesn't it? There are some main things to remember. First of all, When Christ rescues us and gives us our freedom, we go from being useless to being useful for Him. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, I I couldn't find the source of this, so I'm always careful about quoting, but Martin Luther is quoted as saying, as Christ does for us with God the Father, so does Paul with Philemon for Onesimus. We are all God's Onesimus. That is the plural of Onesimus. How do you say it? What's the plural of Onesimus? Onesimuses? We're all God's Onesimuses. Secondly, the best obedience to God's will is willing and joyful obedience. Thirdly, we are called by God, all of us, to imitate Jesus by being compassionate, gracious, and forgiving towards the prodigal son or towards anyone else with whom we might have a difference. Fourthly, we are all extravagantly forgiven in Christ, so we must ourselves be forgiving in the smallest offenses. And every offense against us is small compared to our own God-forgiven sins. Now, with the holidays approaching, you will probably be stepping back into family situations and contexts that you don't find yourself in the rest of the year And there's probably an Onesimus, there's probably a Philemon, there's probably a Paul in that situation. And so you may find yourself in different roles during the holidays. You may find yourself like Paul, the mediator who must gently and humbly remind us of our need to give and receive grace. You may find yourself like Onesimus. You may be the one who has done wrong and who needs to come home to reconciliation and redemption. You may find yourself like Philemon, the one who needs to extend grace to the Onesimus or to the Onesimuses in your life. Imitate the grace of God in extending grace to others. Let's pray. Father... To the praise of the glory of your grace, we thank you. Show us how to imitate the wealth of your glory in forgiveness in Christ. May our generosity abound as we imitate yours, and may it be the cause of many more people giving thanks to you alone. Show us how to give and to receive forgiveness, that your Son would be honored, praised, adored, and worshiped.